So you see here, Robert Spitzer, who was the head of the DSM-3 task force. In other words, he was the head of the, the main, the lead of the person when they, when the American Psychiatric Association reconceived psychiatric difficulties. And he says, the pharmaceuticals were delighted. Now, why are they delighted? Because what did they, in order to get a drug approved for the market, it has to be a treatment for an illness, a disease. You can't get a drug to treat unhappiness, or a, 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 but you can get a drug to treat depression or anxiety when it's seen as an illness. So what they understood that pharmaceutical companies are going to take all these sort of <clears throat> discomforts that people regularly experienced in the in, in, in society, which were seen as maybe episodic, just part of life, anxiety, depressive episodes, that sort of thing. And they're going to put all those difficulties into the illness category. And now they can get FDA approval for drugs to treat those illnesses. Whereas before, there was no way to say to get a drug approved for someone who's unhappy. That's the big shift here. So what was the narrative we were told once DSM-3 was published? And this is the narrative that we organized our thinking around. It is one, major mental illnesses like depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia are due to chemical imbalances in the brain. These illnesses are partly genetic in kind. The diagnoses tell of discrete validated illnesses. Psychiatric drugs, and in particular antidepressants and antipsychotics, fix chemical imbalances in the brain like insulin for diabetes. And then we get a second generation of psychiatric drugs. That's the SSRI antidepressants, the atypical antipsychotics. They're very safe and effective, and their use is necessary and promotes long-term recovery. Now, this is a narrative of an extraordinary medical and scientific advance. We are being told that psychiatric researchers have discovered the very molecules that cause depression, the very molecule that causes madness, the very molecule that causes bipolar disorder. And most remarkably, new drugs are coming on market that can fix those molecules, those abnormalities, in the same way that insulin does for diabetes. It's an antidote to that abnormality. Now, if this were true, I would say this is the greatest medical discovery in history, given the, given the complexity of the human brain. And so that's just the narrative we're, we're told. We start thinking of our children in this way. Oh, if they're having difficulties, they have, might have a chemical imbalance. We think of ourselves in this way. Oh, if I'm depressed, it's because I have a chemical imbalance and on and on. This is our new conception. And we're gonna organize our thinking and our care around this conception. So now that takes hold in 1980. In 1987, Prozac comes to market. This is the first SSRI. And this is hailed as a breakthrough medication precisely because it fixes a chemical imbalance in the brain. We of course get other SSRIs. Then in the 1990s, we get atypical antipsychotics, drugs like Zyprexa, Risperdal. These two are said to fix chemical imbalances in the brain. They're presented as breakthrough medications. You can read articles in the newspapers about how now with these new drugs, people with schizophrenia are going back to work like never before. They can live normal lives. And so we are now in this era, theoretically, within the media of these great advances. The chemical imbalance story has been found to be true. We have drugs that fix these chemical imbalances. And this leads, by the way, 
to this great expansion of the psychiatric enterprise. So whereas before it would be a smaller group of people were said to suffer from a mental illness in any one year, all of a sudden we were hearing that 15, 20% of the population suffers from a psychiatric disorder at any one time. And of course, we start hearing that our children can suffer from ADHD, which was newly, in, which was a new creation in the 1980 um, DSM-3. Just to give you an example of the expansion of this enterprise, in 1987, when, when Prozac came to market, we as a country were spending about $800 million on psychiatric drugs. Uh, 20 years later, we were spending $40 billion on psychiatric drugs. That's a 50-fold increase in the market for psychiatric drugs in 20 short years. And that's what this narrative helped fuel. But now our next part of this, this thought is, let's look and see, well, is it a true narrative? Did science actually support this narrative? And the first thing to do is to look at the chemical imbalances since that's at the heart of this narrative. And what you find is this, first of all, where did the chemical imbalance story arise from? It didn't arise from discoveries of, of, of such a problem in people so diagnosed. It arose from an understanding of how drugs acted on the brain. So for example, in the 1960s, they came to understand that antipsychotics blocked dopamine receptors in the brain. This is the first generation of antipsychotics like um, Thorazine and Haldol. So since the drugs blocked dopamine receptors, they thwarted dopamine transmission in the brain. The idea was that psychosis or schizophrenia must be to too much dopamine. At the same time, they found that the first uh, antidepressants, what they did is they um, they lowered, they, they lowered, they upped, excuse me. <laughs> what they did is they upped serotonergic activity in the brain. And here's how neuro, neurotransmitters, uh, how neurons transmit messages. You have a presynaptic neuron, which releases a neurotransmitter, a molecule like serotonin, a chemical messenger, into the tiny gap between neurons, which is called the synaptic cleft. Those molecules bind with receptors on the postsynaptic neuron. And we say they fit like a key into a lock. And that's, that's that binding that allows for a message to pass along, say a serotonergic uh, pathway or a dopaminergic pathway. Now in order for that messaging system to be crisp, you have to remove that molecule from the receptors and from the synaptic cleft very quickly. And that removal is done of one of two ways. Either it goes back up into the presynaptic neuron versus reuptake channels, or an enzyme comes along and metabolizes that and the, and the metabolites are, are carted off as waste. Those are two ways you remove serotonin from the synaptic cleft. What they understood is that the new drugs um, block that normal reuptake or that normal metabolization process. So now serotonin and, and what are called monoamines stay longer in the synaptic cleft. You're upping serotonergic activity. So the, now the thought is um, depression is due to too little serotonin. So the origins of the chemical imbalance story arise from an understanding of how drugs perturb normal neurotransmitter functioning and a hypothesis that the, that the, that the illnesses themselves or the disorders themselves are characterized by the opposite of that action. So that's what the hypothesis is in the 60s and the 70s. 
But now they have to see, do people with depression, do they have low serotonin activity prior to going on an antidepressant? Well, there's a long history of this research. In 1984, the NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, which is our leading research institution in the United States, says this about it. Elevations or decrements in the functioning of serotonin systems per se are not likely to be associated with depression. Now, there was a bunch of, more, there was many other studies into this low serotonin theory in the rest of the 1980s and early 1990s. In 1998, the American Psychiatric Association's own textbook said, that theory is dead. And, and not only did they say it's dead in their own textbook, they said it was sort of not a very valid hypothesis in the first place because there's no reason that the mechanism of action in a disease should be the opposite of what the drug is doing. So believe it or not, the low serotonin theory of depression was basically declared by the American Psychiatric Association itself in its own communications to itself, not in its communications to the public in 1998. And here's a man, Alan Frazier, who spent decades researching this theory, the low serotonin theory of depression. And what does he say? I don't think there's any convincing body of data that anybody has ever found that depression is associated to a significant extent with loss of serotonin. Now, if we go to the, the overactive dopamine theory of schizophrenia, Stephen Hyman, he's also a former director of the NIMH. He says in his book, 2002, there is no compelling evidence that a lesion in the dopamine system is a primary cause of schizophrenia. Now, Kenneth Kendler, he's an editor at Psychological Medicine. He was one of the world leaders in hunting for this whole chemical imbalance story to see if people with psychiatric disorders really had these chemical imbalances. And what did he say in 2005? We have hunted for big, simple neuro neurochemical explanations for psychiatric disorders and have not found them. And then you see Ronald Pies. He's a former editor-in-chief of Psychiatric Times. He's a psychiatrist, well-known psychiatrist. He says in 2011, in truth, the chemical imbalance notion was always a kind of urban legend, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. So you see the problem here. We organized our thinking and our sense of self around a story of great medical progress, the chemical imbalance story, that story also fueled our use of drugs because that story says you need the drugs to fix that chemical imbalance and you need them chronically to fix that chemical imbalance. And all the while, if you go into the scientific literature, it was a hypothesis that was failing to pan out. So you see the problem here. We as a society organized our thinking and our conception of psychiatric disorders around a false narrative of scientific advance. Now, I won't go into the search for genes in the same detail. You all, we also, we regularly heard that these were just genetic diseases and that they, because the, there's this genetic component, it, it's, it's one reason people get ADHD, anxiety, depression, and schizophrenia. However, as they were saying this, after they were making these claims, they hadn't actually found any genes for these disorders. And now here's the, uh, the latest big study on this. In a study of 50,000 people, they failed to find any genes that influence mental illness. Here was the conclusion. The results from this study are completely negative. No gene is formally statistically significant after correction for multiple testing. 
And even those which are ranked highest and lowest do not include any which could be regarded as being biologically plausible candidates. And there was an earlier study that said genetics explained less than 3% of the risk for varying, various psychiatric diagnosis. In other words, what you really see in the genetic literature is this. Our genetic makeup really is at its heart a way of, of making us responsive to the environment. And in fact, the environment changes genetic expression. Now, you might have people who are more sensitive to certain things, less sensitive to certain things. But what they're saying is they never found a gene abnormality of any note that explains why one person gets ADHD, quote, get diagnosed with ADHD or becomes anxious, depression, et cetera. So this idea of sort of genetic determinism that is presented to us is another false story, okay? Now, how about we heard in the, there were educational campaigns mounted in the 1990s as they were selling their SSRIs and selling their atypical antipsychotics. They said, these are the diseases of the brain. Depression is a disease, a discrete illness, okay? Then we heard that bipolar is a discrete illness and that schizophrenia is a disease, et cetera, et cetera. But then, and that was the thought in 1980. The thought in 1980 when they published DSM-3 was that, in, 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 that, that there would be, they would find research that would validate these disorders and what research would be genes. They would find that certain, they would find out what is the characteristic long-term course of the disorder. They would find out that different diseases are only responsive to a very specific type of drug. So that was the idea. And we did hear, in fact, that, okay, these are diseases of the brain. But now we go to uh, when they were discussing, in, in, when they were creating the DSM-5, there was a roundtable discussion of the DSM and DSM-3. They, had, they gathered 20 experts in psychiatric diagnosis. And here's what was the conclusion. Virtually all discussants agreed there was no evidence that, they, that these disorders in the DSM had been validated as real diseases. Here's what James Phillips concluded. The startling failure of research to validate the DSM categories of DSM-3 and DSM-4 has led to a conceptual crisis in our nosology. What exactly is the status of DSM diagnoses? And just read, you can read here comments by the, some of the leading figures in American psychiatry. Thomas Insel, when he was director of the NIMH, the strength of each of the editions of DSM has been reliability. Each edition has ensured that clinicians use the same term in the same ways. The weakness is its lack of validity. Next, DSM diagnoses are not useful for research because of their lack of validity. DSM diagnoses have given researchers a common nomenclature, but probably the wrong one. This is from the former editor of the American Journal of Psychiatry. You look at the chair of the DSM, DSM task force, DSM-4 task force. Alan Francis, what is he says? These diagnoses are better understood as no more than currently convenient constructs or heuristics that allow us to communicate with one another as we conduct our clinical research, educational, forensic, and administrative work. They are constructs as opposed to diseases in nature. And then you'll find the last one from Joel Paris. He says, in reality, we do not know whether conditions like schizophrenia bipolar disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder are true diseases. <laughs>